children, this morning uh, we're going to combine the children's sermon with the adult sermon. Uh, and I'm going to be quite short, and I think you'll find it interesting. So please do stay if you want to. So I love this week of this Sunday of the church year. It's, it's one of my favorite traditions that we've inherited to read aloud the whole passion narrative in one go. And thanks to the readers who did such a great job reading it. We get to hear the whole magnificent story in one place. And it's a story of Jesus standing trial, Jesus being on trial in front of a bunch of different people. So um, all I want to do uh, as, I, as I preach now is just to look at him, look at Jesus and think about how he comes off <laughs> in that trial. Um, Jesus, I think we notice, is so unlike anyone else in the story and so unlike anyone else that we've ever known. And so I want to draw attention to six things about Jesus in 12 minutes, okay? We're going to look at Jesus and see his sorrow, his courage, his patience, his mercy, his poverty, and his impact. All things that we can see about him as he stands trial. So six things in 12 minutes. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, first, we see his sorrow. So at the beginning of this narrative, we, we met Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is the beginning of your sheets, Mark 14, verse 32. Um, and then in verse 34, Jesus says this to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And then he even asks his father for another plan, for a way out of the sorrow. So we've got to notice that Jesus did not want to go to the cross. At least a big part of him didn't want to go. He knew that it was coming in less than 12 hours, and he didn't want to go. So we can rule out any idea that the cross was some grandiose gesture, some big show to get attention and make history, because we see that as Jesus faced it, he was sorrowful. He was deeply distressed and troubled in the privacy of the garden. So think about that. Jesus was God, right? He was God in the flesh. Jesus made this plan. He knew that it was right. He knew what had to be done. And we know that a big part of Jesus really did want it more than anything because Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. He loved the world and he wanted to save us. But he also experienced this inattention of hesitating in the face of doing the right thing because it was such a hard and painful thing. And he did ask his father, is there any other way? But as we watch him wrestle, he comes to the point of saying, yet not my will, but what you will. So Jesus surrendered to his father's will. He trusted in his father's wisdom and goodness. This surrender is what priest Joseph Langford calls our only path to holiness. Our only path to holiness is surrendering to the will of the Father, as Jesus does here. So for us, if we've had the experience of knowing the right thing to do and hesitating to do it because of how hard it is, then Jesus knows all about that, and he can sympathize with that too. And he has shown us what it means to surrender our wills to God. Okay, so that's his sorrow. Now, second, we see his courage. Uh, 
Because despite the overwhelming emotions in verse 33, Jesus is fully in control of himself by verse 48. He calmly addresses the mob of thugs. He allows himself to be arrested. So after surrendering to his father, Jesus has the courage then to surrender to everyone else. In everything that follows, Jesus is firm and steadfast. He never once fights back or shows any anger or fear. He has incredible courage. So if you flip over the page to verse 61, in the face of lying testimony and with his life in the balance, Jesus remained silent and made no answer to them. When it came to being asked direct questions, he answered simply and directly, first to the high priest, and then later to Pilate. He made no uh, threats. He displayed no anger or no attempts to justify himself. It was just steadfast courage. Now that's amazing, especially in the light of his emotional agony that we just saw in Gethsemane. And it's amazing, especially in contrast with all the wimps around him, right? Um, so back in verse 50, all his disciples abandoned him and fled. One of them even ran away naked. Then in verse 66, we find Simon Peter, who had so recently been brandishing his sword and making false promises, now denying Jesus in front of a servant girl. And then on the next page in chapter 15, verse 10, Pontius Pilate, who you remember was supposed to be an unflappable Roman governor, even though he knew full well that Jesus was innocent, abandoned justice out of fear for a crowd. It's cowards. It's cowards everywhere. But in the midst of all of them, one man stands up to show us what real courage looks like. Third, we see Jesus' patience. Because we remember that Jesus was up all night listening to their nonsense. And his trial was a total fiasco, wasn't it? No amount of shenanigans in the American courts, and we know there's plenty. But even the shenanigans in the American courts have nothing on this trial. First of all, the trial happened in the middle of the night, which was illegal. It was in the middle of Passover week, which was also illegal. Um, it had an undefended plaintiff who was judged to death in front of a series of hastily recruited false witnesses in the middle of the night. So according to the law that they all claimed to be following, every single person in that courtroom belonged in jail for conspiracy to murder, except for the one man who was standing trial. But Jesus, knowing that full well, suffered through it patiently. And remember that this was after a night of no sleep. Then he bravely took the blows from the Roman guards. Then he waited through another sham trial in front of Pontius Pilate, knowing that Pilate would believe he was innocent, but that it wouldn't make any difference. Then he suffered the indignities rained down on him by the whole Roman battalion, the purple robe, the crown of thorns, the mocking and kneeling down in false homage, and the stripping and the flogging and the crucifixion. And remember that at any point in this proceedings, Jesus could have called an end to it. He could have snapped. He could have called down a legion of angels to his aid and given all of them a taste of their own medicine. But he didn't. And what I see is that the distance between his patience and my patience is beyond what words can describe. Fourth, we see his mercy. 
It's not just patience through his trial, is it? It's active mercy in the middle of it. Jesus, all the way through, still obviously cared what happened to all the people around him, all the worthless and wicked people around him. He cared about Peter and James and John. He warned them three times in Gethsemane to stay awake and pray because this was going to be a big night. He also warned Peter ahead of time that he was going to betray him. Jesus treated the crowds who came to arrest him with mercy, telling his disciples to put their swords away. He had mercy on the high priest in verse 62, because when the high priest asked him a simple question, he gave him a simple answer. Are you the son of God? I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus tells it to him straight in solid biblical imagery using prophecy. Jesus had it backed up with hundreds of impressive miracles and only hopeless bias on behalf of the high priest would miss the simple truth of this statement. So even though many powerful people conspired to be Jesus' enemy, he was always and only their friend. He always only treated them with mercy. And he never yielded his position of strength for one moment. Even when he was blindfolded and flogged and stripped naked and nailed to a cross, he never forgot or once let them forget that his father was the only one who was really in control and that Jesus himself was in no one's hands but God's. And so he stands here as the only sane person in a world of madness. But he never hated them for their madness or lost an opportunity to show them mercy. And we can all find ourselves, can't we, in this story, somewhere in the sea of people, or we can find someone in that sea of people who is just like us, and it's not Jesus. It's one of the weak, mad, confused, broken people around him. It's one of the people who is receiving his mercy. Fifth, we see his poverty. We are reminded in this story once again that Jesus was poor, materially poor. He was born into poverty in a stable. He lived 30 years as a laborer, a total unknown. Then his short ministry accumulated no wealth. He walked around with nowhere to lay his head. And here at the end, he dies naked, destitute, as poor as it is possible to be. There was not one day of Jesus' life where he was not poor. If Jesus was down here living in America right now, we would expect to find him on the crab boats of the Outer Banks or at labor finders or mining coal in Appalachia, among the people who live hand to mouth, because this was the place in society that he chose for himself. We watched him come into Jerusalem in triumphal entry, riding a borrowed donkey. And I wonder, friends, if that was the first time in Jesus' life he ever rode anything. Every other time we meet him in the Gospels traveling, he's on foot. Why is this important? Because in his trial, it makes a mockery. It makes the mockery of the Roman guards all the more bitter, doesn't it? Because they took him and they clothed him in a purple robe and a crown. The symbols of power. You know, mocking him. You're pretending to be a king. Jesus had never worn those symbols of power, ever. He had never claimed to be that kind of king. Other people were the pretenders. The other kings wore that stuff. They were pretending Jesus was the real thing. Their mockery is so ironic. It's what everybody else did. 
Other people win allegiance with crowns and fancy clothes, but Jesus not once. Nothing about him was shiny or attractive, and yet he remains history's most compelling person. And we have to ask ourselves why that is. And that brings us to the sixth and final observation, which is his impact. So no one ever met the real Jesus and left that meeting unchanged. Some people were changed for the better. Other people were changed for the worse. But one way or the other, his impact was universal on everyone he met. So I'm sure that the high priest in Jerusalem was chosen to that position because he was a good man, because he was a righteous and just man. But in front of Jesus, does he not turn into a monster? I'm sure Pontius Pilate became Roman governor through skill and diplomacy and some kind of backbone. But in front of Jesus, he melted like a Walmart candle. In the story we heard this morning, we watched Simon Peter with all his bravado made a coward and Joseph of Arimathea made brave. We watched the men who'd stuck like glue to Jesus for three years come unstuck and the women showed what devotion was. We watched the crowd raised to the heights of Hosanna and less than a week later dashed to the depths of crucify him. And then the Roman guards being made especially mean and spiteful until one of them saw how Jesus died and declared, truly, this man was the Son of God. Do you see anyone in this story on whom Jesus did not have a profound and lasting impact? He, he had different effects on different people, but he always had an effect. He always changed your life one way or another. So I think here we see what Scripture meant when it prophesied that the Father would lay a stone in Zion. To some, it would be a stone of stumbling. The arrogant would smash themselves to pieces on it. But to others, it would be a cornerstone chosen and precious on which they can build their lives. So I want to leave you with that image and think about Jesus as that stone who we meet and must deal with one way or the other and encourage you not to trip on Jesus, but instead to notice him, to listen to him, to follow him, to love him. We see here his sorrow, his courage, his patience, his mercy, his poverty, and his impact. And we see that no one like Jesus has ever lived. Amen.